0: I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Scott Harrison, founder of Charity Water, an organization that aims to provide clean water to communities in developing countries. There are over a half a billion people without water globally. Scott launched Charity Water in 2006 after raising his first $15,000 from his friends at his 31st birthday party. Prior to launching Charity Water, Scott was a nightclub promoter. Welcome.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me.
0: Needless to say, one doesn't think nightclub promoter turns nonprofit founder. It's not uh, the
1: traditional path.
0: <laughs> and I'd like to dig into how that conversion happened. Uh, but I want to talk first about you know your life as a nightclub promoter. What led you to that profession after college at NYU initially?
1: Well, it was an utter act of rebellion. Really, uh, mm-hmm. I had grown up in a very conservative Christian home. Uh, I was an only child. My mom was an invalid growing up, so she was really sick. And I was that good kid that played by the rules, that turned up in Sunday school, that did everything right until the age of 18. And I joined a band. I grew my hair down on my shoulders. I set off for New York City to make it rich and famous. And uh, unfortunately for us, our band hated each other. So even though we were good, we couldn't stick together. So I learned quickly that the people on the other side of the business were the ones that made the money. They would. Uh, the promoters were the ones that would take the money, and they'd throw hundred dollars to us and say, "Divvy that up seven ways," and then they would, you know, go home with with pockets full of cash. So, when the band broke up, I was nineteen and decided to try to uh, try my hand at the other side of the business. I mean, this was an extraordinary job. If you could get the right people inside nightclubs, uh, you could charge them extraordinary amounts. For liquor, I And mean, people would pay $20 for a vodka soda, they'd pay $500 for a bottle of champagne that you could go buy for $30. Mm-hmm. And the next 10 years really flashed by as I was trying to climb up this social ladder to become, you know, one of the kings of New York nightlife.
0: Did it provide some catharsis for you to be able to kind of go out unfettered?
1: I think the, the business looks great from the outside. I mean, you're going to dinner at 10, you know, at the hottest restaurant in town. You're jumping into the back of town cars or limos with, you know, pretty girls. And uh, you go to the club at 12. It starts to break down around 5 a.m. for a lot of people when the lights come on and then you go to some after hours and you might crawl in bed at 10 or 11 a.m., and other people are on their lunch break. I remember looking out a window on Houston Street once uh, at people in suits on their lunch break. And I hadn't been to bed yet. So there's a real, uh, there's a dark underbelly, at least for me. Uh, it became incredibly destructive for me personally. I uh, you know, picture of my life at 28 years old. I had smoked two packs of Reds for 10 years. I had a drinking problem. I had a cocaine problem. I had a gambling problem. I had a pornography problem, strip club problem, pretty much anything short of heroin, you know, I'd picked up as a vice over 10 years. And I'd come so far from the morality, the spirituality uh, of, you know, my childhood.
0: At what point did you start to feel like, you know what, I am in a, an, an empty place?
1: I really had the, the, kind of the moment of catharsis uh, at 28 years old. I was in Punta del Este on this opulent vacation with the right people, uh, the bottle buyers who had private planes, the, you know, the people from Cirque de Soleil. And I remember we'd rented this insane house with servants and with horses, and there were magnums of Dom Perignon. And I remember going to the fireworks store and throwing down $1,000 for fireworks, and This was the life. My girlfriend at the time was on uh, billboards and the cover of magazines, and I had a Labrador retriever and a grand piano in my New York apartment and a BMW and all the things that should have made me fantastically happy. And I remember this party, specifically at the house, that lasted longer than I wanted it to. And a day and a half later, there were still drunk, cracked-out people, to be honest, that were partying on our compound. And I remember just wanting the music to stop. And I realized that I would never find happiness or, um, yeah, I do not even know what I was looking for at the time, but I wasn't gonna find it in the next party. There would never be enough girls. There'd never be enough money. There would never be enough parties. And I saw my life play out. And if I continued down this path for another 10 or 20 years, if I were to be lucky enough to make it to 50, I would look like I was 100 years old Mm -hmm. because it takes its toll and you know what i saw around me was wreckage you would see these guys whose wives had left them they're dating you know girls often younger than their daughters their daughters didn't speak to them and it was just kind of it's like the veil was lifted and i was able to see things a little more clearly as as for what they were
0: and at that point, you decided, you know what, I'm going to spend a year to have a catharsis from the last 10 years that I've spent. And you ended up on a ship. It's called the Mercy Ship, uh, which is basically a, a floating hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And this is after you were turned down by other organizations that wouldn't have you?
1: Well, on paper, I don't look like a great humanitarian at this point. So uh, after this trip, I came back to New York, and I I tried to find my way back to faith and spirituality and morality, but yet I was getting people wasted. I mean, that was my job. So being a pretty radical guy, uh, I decided, okay, what would it look like to make my life look exactly the opposite? And I thought service to the poor. It's a long story, but I remember renting a cobalt blue Ford Mustang. And there was an unlimited rental, really. And I start driving aimlessly north. I wind up in Maine uh, in a dial-up internet cafe on Moosehead Lake. And in this little location, I start applying to these famous humanitarian organizations, hoping that they would take me. Well, as you said, no one would take me. Very fortunately for me, one organization, the only one that hadn't rejected me, said if I was willing to go to Liberia post-war Liberia at the time. And if I was willing to pay them $500 a month, I could volunteer. <laughs> so there it was. I had actually found the opposite of my life.
0: What did you find on, on the ship? And by the way, you know, to be on a ship for a year or is pretty isolating.
1: It was. Well, I went from a pretty nice loft in, in Midtown at the time to a 200-square-foot cabin with two roommates that worked in the engine room and lots of cockroaches. And I remember feeling sorry for myself. I mean, look at these conditions, and I don't have privacy, I don't have space. And then I set foot outside into post-war Liberia. And I found a country with no electricity, no running water, no sewage, no mail. Uh, the healthcare system was completely debilitated. There was one doctor for every 50,000 people that lived in the country. You know, for comparison, I think we have a doctor for 180 of us here. And I remember on my third day in West Africa grabbing the camera, and it wasn't lost on me that I had a built-in audience of 15,000 people that I'd gotten drunk for a decade. So they went from getting invited to the Prada party to (laughs) crazy pictures of leprosy and uh, cleft lips and burns and massive benign tumors, really intense suffering. My third day there, we turned up at a football stadium that the government had given us to screen our patients, and we had 1,500 surgery slots, which would book us for eight months, and uh, over 5,000 people were standing there. Thousands of people who had come with hope, many who had walked over a month with their children, Mm -hmm. hearing the doctors were in town, would be sent away. Simply because we didn't have enough resources. And mm-hmm. uh, that was one of the most devastating, life changing moments for me.
0: You mentioned the 15,000 people watching you on was it not really social media at the time. It's just an email list. And when did you first start to notice that a lot of these problems that you were seeing leprosy, tumors, so it is like tumors? Yeah, we specialize um,
1: in facial tumors.
0: Facial tumors uh, were a result of poor water
1: conditions. Well, my job looked like this. And, and remember, this is the job that I was paying for <laughs> to do. But I'd get up really early in the morning I'd go down on the hospital ward and I would meet the sick patients that would be operated on that day. I mean, some of these people had suffered for over a decade. Imagine something starts growing in your face and there's no doctor or surgeon to go to and it grows a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger. And 10 years later, you are choking for air. You can barely eat because you're suffocating to death on your own face. That's what we saw. And by the way,
0: these tumors are bigger than baseballs.
1: Basketballs. I mean, some of them were seven or eight pounds. That was one part of the job, and and these these stories ended well. The end of an eight-hour surgery, the basketball tumor has been thrown in the bin. The patient has been sewed up, and I got to watch them recover, and I got to take them home to their villages and watch them re-accepted by their family, you know, families who had written them off for dead, uh, during huge celebrations and dancing and partying and and welcoming. them. So these were happy stories. But I started spending more time in the rural areas, going out deep into the bush, and I saw people drinking dirty water for the first time. Then I'm scrubbed up in these very elaborate surgeries, telling the surgeons what I'm seeing in the villages. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the surgeons are saying, well, yeah, water is responsible for uh, 53% of disease for instance, in the developing world. And if, if people had their most basic health need met, uh, maybe there wouldn't be 5,000, 7,000 people turning up outside football stadiums. Mm-hmm.
0: Not so that to was the link. M- not to mention, I mean, the, we're talking about the quality water, but also the difficulty of obtaining water, how women walk for days to carry 30 pounds of water. That's and- true. And
1: I didn't see that at the time. Uh, certainly now, in, in working in 24 countries, we've seen that. Uh, the stat around time waste—it was forty billion hours were wasted.
0: Can you break that down? Like, can you give an example or a story of of what that looks like?
1: Sure. Well, I've I've seen a lot. Uh, a country that I, I love dearly and uh, a place of of a lot of impact for us is Ethiopia. So I've been there twenty-seven times now. A couple of years ago, I really needed to reconnect with the mission, and I'd heard about this story that that just didn't sound true. I'd heard about this 13-year-old girl that was walking eight hours for dirty water, and one day she comes back in the village, and before she reaches her house, she's got this clay pot with all the water she's collected, and she slips and falls, and she doesn't make it home with the water. She breaks the clay pot. She spills the water, and as the story goes, she took a rope, and she hung herself from a tree. So I didn't know if it was true. And I, I wanted to see if it was for myself. And uh, if it was true, I wanted to live in that village for a week. So I, I hiked about nine hours from where the road ended uh, in the hot sun over the mountains. I had to bring my own water in so that I wouldn't get sick. And I found out this was a, a true story. Her name was Letikiros Hailu. I met her mom. I met the girlfriend uh, that walked with her that day mm-hmm. and, you know, walked in her footsteps to this nasty water, this mat water you couldn't imagine ever drinking, water you wouldn't give your dog to drink, uh, let alone your children. And I saw the clay pots that they used to carry, and uh, they took me to the tree where they found her body, and they took me to her grave, and they told me about her funeral, and I met the uh, the Ethiopian priest that gave the service. And it was a really powerful... Uh, experience putting a name to that kind of suffering. Uh, And I I remember asking before I left, I asked her friend who had walked with her that day. I said, why do you think she didn't just go back for water? Why end her life? And her friend said uh, it would have been the shame that was too much for her because she had let down her family. Mm. They were counting on that water to cook dinner. Mm. Her mother, her brothers and sisters needed that water. And even worse, she had destroyed this clay pot because of her carelessness. And rather than face the family in the face of that shame, um, you know, she took her own life. These are not exaggerated stories. This is reality.
0: You decided to start Charity Water in 2006. And it struck me because I I remember when I first heard about it, probably in 2006 or seven, I was like, Charity Water, charity is such like a lame name. Mm -hmm. I wonder why he...
1: And also not very creative, right? Charity Water, like that's your name?
0: Right. Talk to me about that decision.
1: So to paint a picture coming back. So the one year with uh, Mercy Ships actually turned into two. And, you know, I had been emailing my 15,000 person list. So it got a little smaller. (laughs) There were a lot of people that unsubscribed from the tumors and the sickness and the dirty water. But I realized the power of... Of telling these stories. I remember an email response and it came from a woman that said, I'm sitting here at my desk at Chanel. Tears are streaming down my face. I never knew that a woman my age would go through this. How do I help? So I'd realized the power of these stories to move people towards compassion, towards empathy, towards uh, generosity, both with their time and their money. So Coming back, I am completely broke. I am living on a friend's closet. I mean, that is a closet floor. Which friend? Uh, it was an old club friend. My, my old club partner took me back in. And it wasn't a great time to start an organization with no donor base, with no... Uh, With no money. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did have this credibility. I had two years where I had lived there and I had seen it. Mm -hmm. And I'd been telling these stories to the 15,000 people that I'd gotten drunk for so many years. Really, the charity for the first couple months was just called charity. Mm -hmm. And it was even almost lamer than that. I was running around saying, hey, I want to start this charity called charity. And for me, as I was talking to my friends, I realized they were disenchanted. Uh, 46% of Americans actually don't trust charity. But it meant love. Mm -hmm. caritas in Latin. It's simply meant to help those in need. And I had seen these incredible doctors for two years who could be on vacation with their families in the Maldives and instead are operating for free with their two or three weeks off, you know, giving everything they have. So I was not jaded by that experience. And I wanted to create an organization that would get people to take another look. The colon Mm -hmm. was... You know, I wasn't sure what initiatives we would take on, but water seemed like the first place to start.
0: And one way you did that was by giving 100% of the money to the water projects. From day one. Right. So there was certainly, you know, that credibility uh, in addition to the technology component. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the number one complaint most people have with charities is all around money. How much of my money will actually reach people? And I thought, well, what if we could create a different business model where you're not allowed to use that objection? So we reply, 100% of your money. And then separately, we would figure out how to go and find a very small group of people and get them excited about overhead. Uh, We could do really cool things using technology to track those dollars. Whether a six-year-old gave $6 from her allowance or uh, someone donated $100,000, we could show them which country, which projects that money actually helped fund.
0: So what does that mean? like did you walk into Staples and like buy a, like like on the granular level, what did that look like at the very beginning?
1: We were very fortunate. We started the same year as Google Earth and I kind of had this aha moment. Wow, Google has given us this free place where we could put every single water point we are ever going to fund up online. And we could make that publicly transparent. And it would be as simple as buying a $50 handheld GPS unit and training all of our local partners across our countries to turn on a GPS unit, take a picture of the GPS coordinates, take a picture of the project, and then we would make that data public. But mm-hmm. at the simplest level, it was just If we fund 100 water projects, you should be able to log on and see where those 100 projects are.
0: Some of your campaigns initially were very resonant with people. Can you talk about one or two that you remember?
1: Sure. Well, the the brand was going to be really important to us. And as I looked at the charitable sector, I didn't see that Nike, the Apple, the Virgin. And I I remember coming across this quote by Nick Kristof in The New York Times. And he said... uh, toothpaste is peddled with far more sophistication than all of the world's life-saving causes. I thought, wow, that is true, and that is so busted. So, a lot of interesting things. I mean, I remember early on we shot people, uh, rich people in New York City in the same exact positions uh, juxtaposed with people um, that we were trying to serve, just posing the question, what if your mom had to get water from a swamp? Uh, with bone and hair in it it came down from, you know, a gully. What if your children had to walk to school every day with their school uniforms on with 40 pounds of contaminated water on their back?
0: And people working in finance coming up to Central Park Lake, was
1: it? Yeah, Central Park Pond. We took them up there. Imagine if you're, you know, lunch break in your Brioni suit. You've got to go get nasty water. One of our first PSAs actually was, was a fun story. We got Terry George, who directed to Hotel Rwanda, to donate his time, and Jennifer Connolly uh, and her children. And we walked them up in a 30-second in a piece to Central Park. And Jennifer Connolly gets her kids this nasty water. And then she goes back in this beautiful Tribeca loft, and she gives her kid the only water that, that there is. Yeah. And you see this putrid water and the kids looking at it. And uh, it cuts at the end to say, imagine drinking this. One Mm -hmm. billion people do. You were
0: fortunate uh, in the early days to have support from Sean Parker and Jack Dorsey and Daniel Eck, who's the founder of Spotify. Mm -hmm. How did the tech community become your friend? Was there one or two people that really was the turnkey for that?
1: Sure. There was one that really helped out. and I mentioned this 100% model, so I made that sound really great. Well, a year and a half in, the entire organization almost blew up. So I remember the overhead account uh, was always low and the water projects, we'd raise millions. So we're, we come to this crossroads where we've got a few weeks left uh, and then we run out of money for payroll. But yet we had $883,000 on its way out to build water projects. And at that moment, I had written uh, a tech entrepreneur uh, out of the blue, I'd scraped his email off of the Whois domain registry, mm-hmm. and I'd written a long, impassioned email, uh, completely about something else, not about money, about a product idea I had.
0: To Michael Birch? To Michael
1: Birch, yeah, for his social network, which was called Bebo at the time. I'd written him, I'd written Mark Zuckerberg, and I'd written uh, Tom at MySpace. Mm-hmm. And Birch wrote me back, and he said, hey, I love the idea uh, of this organization, but it's just really bad timing for me, and I can't help so six months later at this moment when we're about to run out of money and shut down the organization, he pops up and he says, hey, I'm coming through New York City. Uh, that email you sent a while ago was intriguing and I'd love to you know, meet you. Lucky you. Lucky me. So he comes into the organization. We have a two hour meeting. I thought it went horribly. I thought he didn't like me. Uh, he's very British, so he was very reserved. And I remember just passionately kind of pouring out the vision for Charity Water, the purity, the 100% model, believing that this would get people to trust charity again if I could only get past the next few weeks.
0: And so he knew about your dire situation.
1: I, I remember being very transparent. And he left the meeting and said, well, let me think about it. And a couple days later, I remember it was well after midnight. I was working. I was praying with very little faith. I got an email from him saying, Scott, it was great meeting you. Uh, I've wired a million dollars into the overhead account. And we went from running out of room to over a year in funding.
0: What in your past do you think gave you this instinct just to be as hardcore as you are, whether it's being a nightclub promoter or the absolute opposite?
1: Growing up taking care of a a sick mom uh, was, was very difficult, but I was always needed. And my parents really said, look, you can do anything... I think there was just always this sense of possibility. I loved. I was enthusiastic. I loved telling stories. I remember having a police scanner and you know driving around a little town trying to find the story.
0: And your own story, uh, you know, of your mother's illness was very unconventional. What happened?
1: When I was four, um, we moved from Philadelphia to the suburbs of of New Jersey to get closer to my dad's job. And he was just a middle-class businessman. Uh, And there was a carbon monoxide gas leak in this new home. So the gas company had installed a faulty furnace that had tiny cracks that leaked carbon monoxide. And my dad and I actually got a little sick at the time, but my mom was fixing up the basement, fixing up the house. was always in the house at the time and slowly dying. And this is, you know, over 30 years ago before the carbon monoxide detectors were were prevalent. So uh, I remember on New Year's Day, she walks across my parents' bedroom. She collapses unconscious on the floor. Uh, We rush her to the hospital, and it took a long series of tests to find these massive amounts of carboxyhemoglobin in her bloodstream. And so thankfully for our family, she didn't die, but her immune system was irreparably destroyed. And she went from this healthy, vibrant super mom, super wife, flying around the world, writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer, to a complete invalid, wearing charcoal masks connected to oxygen, living in a tile bathroom that had been washed with ivory soap that was completely covered in tinfoil, mm-hmm. sleeping on an army cot uh, that was purified by baking soda. So she, she lived in, in the most extreme environment, and everything made her sick. So it, it, was, it was a bizarre uh, childhood for sure.
0: Is your mom still in that situation?
1: My mom got better when interesting to the timing when I went to the Mercy Ships experience when I when I went to Liberia, West Africa. I came back and found her about 70% better. Um, so part of it is just eating organic for 30 years and just figuring out how to avoid things that make her sick. Uh, when my wife and I and, and our son go and visit them, which we do about once a month, we we still change into clothes that have been washed and purified and mm-hmm. she's able to function much more normally today.
0: I wonder if your if your change in what you were doing with your life gave her hope in a way that made her feel better.
1: I would like to say, you know, I wasn't responsible for her illness for all those years because I was a good kid growing up. But the the timing was really interesting. I mean, my parents have this deep and authentic faith. At the time, they didn't sue the gas company for gross negligence. I think they took 20 grand as, hey, we're sorry, go away money. But my dad didn't want to become bitter.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Scott Harrison, founder of Charity Water, an organization that aims to provide clean water to communities in developing countries. You know, in addition to having support from the tech community, uh, Google made a a gift uh, of $5 million uh, to specifically help with remote sensors. Can you talk about the problem that you were seeing uh, with some of your projects and how that helped?
1: We had raised 150 million dollars from you know going on close to a million unique donors. So, so the organization had grown very very quickly. A lot of things had worked. Timing was was really helpful uh, in the age of social media. We never direct mailed. You know we were the first charity to get a million Twitter followers. We uh, were the first charity. Morning one, I think it was us NPR and the Boston Celtics that got the first Instagram accounts. So we were just this this culture of early adopters. Um, we had all of these water projects out there. We knew where they all were. We had worked with a, a network of 24 local partners. So the important thing was we were not going to go send Westerners over to Africa or India or Asian drill wells. We had gotten really good at identifying the best organizations in country to do that. And then we would raise the money to scale them up. So years later, that had worked. We've got maybe 15,000 projects out there. We know where they're all built. We put them all on Google Earth and Google Maps. but. You know, I began to wake up in the middle of the night and say, are they all working? We began sending teams of mechanics out to visit projects, uh, specifically in Ethiopia, thousands of projects twice a year. So we, we got really nice results from that program. And I thought, well, what if there's a way to use technology to bring greater transparency to our work and inform better implementation and better sustainability? So that was the pitch to Google. We said, what if we could create a sensor from scratch? Nothing like this exists. It's got to be specifically for the AfroDev well, of which there are over a million just in Africa alone. Uh, It needs to work in extreme heat environments. Uh, It needs to be waterproof. We need to figure out how to transmit. We have to figure out how to power this thing. And it can't look like it's worth anything. So Google wound up giving us this $5 million grant, which at the time was the the largest gift they had given a nonprofit. And we began to work with 20 different labs to try to create this sensor that would work for us. A lot of mistakes. It was a really challenging project, but currently we have 1,000 of these sensors installed in Ethiopia, 700 are giving us daily data. So I can see how many liters of clean water are flowing from these villages.
0: What are some of the problems that you see on the field?
1: Well, working in 24 countries, uh, lots of things can go wrong. Uh, We've had water quality issues. We'll drill wells sometimes and get massive amounts of fluoride and have to cap wells. Uh, You have possible arsenic issues. You'll have uh, about 10% of the wells will be dry. If you're in a community and 1,000 people have gathered and they are waiting expectantly with their children, and four days later, you've got one or two dry holes and the rig moves to the next village. You know, these have some, some really devastating human mm-hmm. impacts of, of, of deep sadness. It is not always easy. Charity Water has always taken a solution agnostic approach. So we fund nine different technologies. There is no one size fits all to the global water crisis. So Sometimes you can dig a well. Sometimes you can drill a well 1,000 feet. Sometimes you can build rainwater harvesting systems, uh, spring boxes, gravity-fed systems, UV, carbon, UF. Filters. A lot of different things work. Some filters, biosand filters, high-tech filters. So typically it is a simple solution. It is a well for a couple hundred people. It's typically not high-tech stuff that requires lots of maintenance or fuel. We've done solar projects. We've, we really are willing to pilot a few new technologies, but across the portfolio, it's the simple stuff that really works.
0: You mentioned uh, before, uh, you mentioned your wife, Victoria, and your son. How did you meet Victoria?
1: Victoria was my second employee. So it was an office romance. Uh, uh, On the second month of Charity Water, I got this idea to go out into New York City streets and show New Yorkers what it would be like if they had to drink from the East River, the Hudson River, and Central Park Pond. I think we raised about $20,000. Lots of New Yorkers came through. But Vic had volunteered at that exhibition. And I talked to her at the end of the day and said, what do you do? And she said, I'm a graphic designer. I said, oh, I need one of those. a Brand, it's going to be really important. I don't have any money to hire you right now, but would you consider volunteering? So she was working at an ad agency, and she starts moonlighting, helping us create the logo, build the brand. Us, I mean, there was me and one other person living on floors, working around the couch. There was no money in the beginning. I mean, it was all volunteer. Maybe a couple months later, raise a little bit of money for a donor to maybe pay three months of her salary. And she winds up leaving the agency, taking a pay cut, giving up all of her health benefits, and then says, well, I need to go to Africa and actually see one of these projects for myself to design with authenticity. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, we have no money to send you there. So you're on your own. Mm -hmm. So she winds up putting the ticket on her credit card, going to Liberia. Uh, Where things had started for me. Coming back, she comes back with malaria. She gets checked into Beth Israel, and she comes out with a thirty-nine thousand dollar bill. Oh, Uh, this is more than her take-home pay for an entire year. And I remember just saying, "Oh no, we're going to have to go on a very long payment plan." You know, my my wife has uh, my wife now has has a. Uh, childlike faith in a way, and she's like, all right, I'm going to pray that God makes this entire thing go away and there's some crazy miracle. So wouldn't you know it, um, she calls up her old employer and she gets the head of HR on the phone and the head of HR says, hey, aren't you the girl that left to go work on that humanitarian thing, like helping people get water? She says, let me plug you in the system. So she plugs Vicky in the system and finds out that she is still technically employed there. They never cut off her health insurance. And she said, I'm going to pay this entire bill today and I'm going to disconnect you tomorrow. And the entire thing went. Uh, Long story short, uh, over the next year, you know, working together uh, around a couch, 80, 90 hour weeks, uh, my best friend said to me, I was oblivious. I was just trying to build the organization. I wasn't dating. Tunnel vision. My friend says, hey, you have this beautiful girl. She loves God. She loves to serve the poor. Like, what is wrong with you? You know, ask her out. So I have this awkward moment, and again, there's a few of us at this time, and I walk into the office and say, hey, have you ever thought about us? And she says, yes! (laughs) (laughs) She actually just left Charity Water after nine years as Mm -hmm. creative director. Um, I made her a co-founder at a a very tearful ceremony uh, a few weeks ago, and Mm -hmm. she has been instrumental. I miss her already at work.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Scott Harrison, founder of Charity Water, or I should say co-founder of Charity Water, since his wife is the other co-founder, Victoria. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.